To understand our passage today, and actually the next two weeks, the next three sermons, we really have to understand or have kind of a working summary of the temple of God in the Bible, what it is and what it means and why it existed. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created man in his image and man lived in his presence in the garden. Sin comes into the world. Adam disobeys God, and through sin, death comes into the world. And part of the curse of death is that man is separated from the presence of God. He is removed from the presence of God. But the Bible is a promise that God's presence would return to man, that there would be something better than even the garden coming for man. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that promise kind of solidified or made concrete in the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle was first given to Israel and constructed for Israel uh, as a temporary place, as a temporary moving garden that followed them around where they enjoyed the presence of God. But God promised Israel a more permanent place, a more permanent temple which was first of all built by Solomon, the first temple, and then destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar at the Babylonian captivity. But then there was a second temple that was built in 1515 BC after captivity. But then a man named Herod the Great comes along. And Herod thought much of himself. And Herod, had these great, elaborate building projects all over the place that were designed to to bring glory to himself and designed to display how great his kingdom was. But when it came to the temple in Jerusalem where Herod ruled, and he came to this place of worship for the Jews, One of the things Herod decided to do to make his name great among the Jews was to give them a better temple. He didn't like their rundown temple. He wanted to make them a better temple and make Jerusalem a better capital city for him. And so in 37 BC, he tore down the second temple and replaced it with this amazing showpiece, an amazing temple that took 18,000 craftsmen to build. And literally thousands of priests who were uh, responsible for constructing the sacred places inside the temple of God. 18,000 craftsmen, thousands of priests, and it took 46 years to build this temple. And he actually doubled the footprint of the temple that was there before. It was 35 acres, 30 soccer fields. And this temple was made out of massive limestone. Some of of the stone that was carried to this temple was 46 foot long and almost 20 foot wide. These concrete boulders and blocks that are brought in, columns that were nearly 50 foot tall of limestone and was gold plated. And the holy place where the altar of God was, was given a gold top, a gold ceiling. And in the sunlight, it was almost blinding. 
And so when you think about the temple that Jesus entered, remember last week he walks into the temple and turns around and leaves. Think more like a building in downtown Las Vegas. That's what Jesus walks into as the temple of God. Now, we've prepared a video, and it's kind of corny, it's just, it, 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 but it does give you a picture of what Herod's temple would look like. So disregard the music and disregard the little video game, Roman soldiers walking by. But just to give us a picture of what the temple is, uh, we have a video. Yeah, that's corny. So again, this is the temple that we saw last week. Jesus approaches. Jesus walks into. And as we said last week, he walks into this temple, walks into the courtyard and turn around, turns around and leaves. And so what is going on there? Well, many of the Jews resisted having their place of worship built by such a murderous tyrant as Herod. But there were many other Jews, specifically the Sadducees, who they loved the idea of such a monument, of such a place, of such a spectacle. They loved having this magnificent temple, and they used it for their benefit. These Sadducees, they even uh, took on various parts of the Roman culture, and it was infiltrated in Judaism. And this was Herod's temple where they, the Sadducees, ruled. This was their political power. This temple is where they walked around and executed justice. They were the religious elite. And what we're going to see in the next few weeks is Jesus does battle in some sense with the Sadducees in their temple, in their place of worship in their place of power. And Jesus is gonna paint a picture for us of what that's going to look like. First of all, beginning in verse 12, where he curses this fig tree. Jesus is giving us a picture of what is about to happen as he has entered the city of Jerusalem. Notice verse 12. On the following day, after the triumphal entry, 
After Jesus has been praised in the streets by probably millions of people, screaming, shouting, riotous worship, Hosanna, save us. On the following day when they came from Bethany, this place outside of Jerusalem where Jesus is staying during Passover, he was hungry. And so immediately, this is a different picture than what we saw the day before where Jesus is worshiped and being held as king. He's walking into the city probably unnoticed, and Mark points out that he is hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, during this time of the year, fig trees produced leaves, but no fruit. And yet Jesus is going to tell us a parable with this tree. There are leaves all over it, but when he gets to it, there's nothing to eat. He is left lacking. He is still hungry. And notice what he does, verse 14. And he said to it, he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now that's weird, right? Because he said it's, it's not fig season. And, and most would have been on the tree, would have been a little snack. And yet you look at Jesus and he's over to the side whispering to a tree. That's odd. And the disciples, it says the disciples heard it. They heard him curse a fig tree. Now this is the one miracle of judgment from, the, from Jesus. And it's used upon a poor little fig tree off to the side. And you imagine the disciples are going, you know, hangry much? You're that hungry? Isn't that an overreaction, Jesus? What is going on here? Beatrice Russell, an atheist who opposed Christianity, he used this as one of the examples of why he rejected Christianity because Jesus just sort of overreacted here. And this is just silly. Can't Jesus get over himself? What Jesus is doing for his disciples and us is he's giving us a parable. Fig trees were symbolic of God's people and judgment. And what Jesus wants us to have in mind as he approaches this fig tree full of leaves is the day before when he's approaching Jerusalem. And what is Jerusalem full of? Praise. They are throwing their cloaks before Jesus' feet. They are screaming Hosanna to him. Everything looks beautiful. Everything is flourishing for Jesus. Everything looks leafy and green. And then Jesus walks into the temple, the temple, Herod's temple, which looks amazing. It is this magnificent structure. And it would have made perfect sense for Jesus if he is God's king to walk right in the temple and set up shop. All right, let's take over. But what Jesus is saying is the praise of the people, it looks amazing and green. This temple looks amazing and green, but there is no fruit in it. There's nothing for me here. In the praise of the people, it's empty. There's nothing there for him. And Jesus curses fake praise and empty religion in Jerusalem. 
But for just a moment, what is the fruit that is lacking? Well, John the Baptist tells us in Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, when he confronts the Pharisees and he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not assume or presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What he tells the Pharisees is you need to repent of your sin. And don't think just because you're Jews, you don't have to turn from your sin and turn to God. For if you don't, God will raise up from stones children of God. He says in verse 10, even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What, what John is explaining and what Jesus is showing us here is that true life in God comes from repentance, turning from your sin and turning to God. There is no fruit in refusing to repent. There, there is nothing good that is there. Actually, there is a curse, dead religion. And what Jesus is cursing here is the dead religion of Jerusalem that is not repenting of their sin and turning to him as king, but they are taking on their ethnicity. They are taking on this wonderful temple. They are taking on this praise. They are covering their sins in hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy means to put on a mask. And that began with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they try to hide their sin with what? Fig leaves. And Jesus is walking into the city saying, you're just trying to cover your sin. You're trying to cover your sin with this wonderful, fake, empty religion and praise. And he curses it. Jesus curses religion without repentance. And that's why some of you here today are so exhausted. Because you're living a religion that has no repentance to it. You're just trying to cover up your sin with good stuff. You understand underneath it all, there are things that you have done. There are things that you have thought. There are things that you have said. Things in your past. And instead of turning from those things, you're showing up at church. You're showing up at BFG. You're trying to play at you're trying to take on a hypocrisy that has no fruit. Well, I have good news for you today. You can turn from the exhaustion. You can turn from the repentance by refusing to cover your sin up and turning from your sin to Jesus. Hypocrisy isn't in having sin. Hypocrisy is in denying your sin. And there is grace and there is life in God when you turn from your sin and turn to Christ. This is why without repentance, your religion or your Christianity just feels dead. The more you do, the further from God you feel because it's cursed by Jesus. Jesus doesn't accept it. He condemns it and he calls for repentance. But notice next. Verse 15, and then they move on into the city to Jerusalem. And there he entered the temple. The day before he leaves, he comes back, he enters the temple, and what does he do? He begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturns tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
Now, it's very popular today. It's very cool when you show up at church to say, it doesn't matter what you've done. God's not mad at you. Well, if you do what was going on in the temple, Jesus is very mad at you. And if you don't turn from what's going on here, Jesus will be eternally mad at you. There is hope for God's love, but it, but it doesn't come from stealing his glory, which is what's going on in the temple here. Jesus walks into the temple, and we saw it, these massive outer courts and plazas. And Jesus is walking through, and for three days, we're going to see Jesus walking through the temple, and he's teaching his disciples. He's pointing out things that are going on, and he's trying to explain to them the kingdom at the temple. The word of God is in the place where God is supposed to be worshiped. But on this day, Jesus is angry with what's going on. At certain times, there were 75,000 people crammed into those outer courts, I mean, don't think just a, you know, a church coffee shop or a bookstore that Jesus walks into and begins to turn things over. No, he walks into a stockyard. The, the outer plaza of God's temple had been turned into a stockyard, and there are animals in pens, and they are caged, and they are tied up, and they are being sold for sacrifice. You see, when you got to Passover, if you looked at your wife and said, did you bring the lamb? No, that's your responsibility. You're the man of the house. You say, oh, well, let's just go over to the stockyard and buy one. It's convenient. Or if you showed up for worship and the priest said, no, this lamb is blemished. This bird has a broken wing. You could go out to the market and buy another sacrifice. And so that's what's going on in the outer courts of the temple. But we also see money changers are there. They were converting the coins to Roman currency, and we know they were taxed highly. We also see Jesus turns over the seats of those who are selling pigeons or doves. These were to be sacrifices for the poor. But Jesus is furious because the prices have been jacked up. And if the poor are gonna worship God, how are they gonna do so? They can't afford your pigeons, your doves, your birds. And Jesus is furious, and he begins to drive out the people. And we have to picture, again, thousands upon thousands. Think about Kroger Field. I know y'all can only get 65,000 people in that place. It's not 101,000 like Neyland Stadium, but anyway. Think about a place like that. And Jesus stands up, and he just begins to push people out with fury and a whip and anger and begins to turn over tables. He's furious. In verse 16, notice he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now what he's doing here is he shuts down worship for the day. Out of order. This place is closed. Get out. Now in Jesus' ministry, he constantly called himself the door. I am the door. And here Jesus literally becomes the door to the temple. This itinerant, backwoods, Galilean is driving people out of the house of God and standing up and saying, you will not come any further. Don't bring your broken down animals in here. Get them out. He shuts down worship. This would be like someone showing up 
at the White House tomorrow and just driving all of uh, the, the Senate, the House, everyone who works there and just say, get out. No more. Not doing anything here today. This is lunacy for a rabbi to do. But notice he just goes on, verse 17. He was teaching them saying, is it not written? Now this would have been insulting to the scribes. Do you not know the word of God? What is this man doing? What are you doing with our cows? What are you doing with the lambs? What are you doing with the birds? What are you doing with our money? Why are you doing this? And he would turn to them and say, do you not know the word of God? Do you not know your Bibles? This isn't supposed to be happening in here. Do you understand what's going on? And he says, my house. Jesus says, this is my house. It's supposed to be my house. It should be called a house of prayer for all nations. And when you think prayer, don't think about prayer chapel or a little prayer, prayer closet what he means is a place of worship, a place of sacrifice. We saw this in the passage from Isaiah that we read together today. This is to be a place of sacrifice before the altar of God where the worth of God is displayed. This is how much our sin costs God. We have to bring you the best sacrifices. We have to bring you all of who we are. And there has to be blood shed so that we can come before you. And you are worthy. This is supposed to be a place that declares the glory of God. And yet the glory glory of man is stealing it. And notice it is to be a place for the nations. This is where these animals are being bought and sold in the place where the Gentiles, the nations were to gather. The outer courts, this was as close as a non-Jew could come to the altar of God. And they have taken over this place with commerce, with industry. They are robbing God's glory from the nations. And one of the promises that we see in the Old Testament is that the promised king would come into the temple and he would purge it of idolatry. And most Jews thought when he would come to the temple, he would shove out the Gentiles, shove out the nations. They're the idolaters. But what is God doing here? He is purging the self-righteous religious so the nations can come in. He is purging the temple for the Gentiles. This temple that is designed to be a place that manifested God's glory and the men are stealing it. The people are stealing it from God. It is a showpiece for Herod. There is the hustle and bustle of a market where God is being sold like an overpriced souvenir in the very temple of God. This would be a place that was to be a light for the nations, and yet they are blinded by, by the luxury of Herod. They can't see God's glory. Now, a lot of people get to this point, and there are plenty of critiques for the American church. Just type in the name of a Power Ranger and add church to it, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Do it. Just see. Because in America, when you look at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, image has replaced the glory of God. Brand has replaced the gospel. Marketing has replaced mission. Just look. Look at the way people do church. And it would be really easy for me to preach the next 
45 minutes on that. But that's not the point. That was the problem in the self-righteous, is they looked at the world. And those people out there need to get it right. And those people are stealing God's glory. But what happens here is Jesus goes to the heart of worship on the planet and begins to cleanse it. Judgment started with the household of God. And that's why as a church in Richmond, Kentucky, we claim to be the presence of God here today. And so as we think about Jesus cleansing the temple, the first question we should ask is not about those people, but what about these people? If Jesus came here today, if you found a parking place in our gravel, and he walked in the doors, what would he start driving out? What would it be? We can't be scared to ask that question. If we're going to be a church that loves the glory of God, how are we stealing it? Is there any way we're stealing the glory of God? And as individuals, we have to come today and say, am I robbing God of his glory? Is this about a brand or is this about me? And one of the ways that God gets the glory is for you to say, I can't save myself. I can't do anything to be right with God. And some of you are stealing God's glory that way today because you're trying to do a bunch of good stuff and say it's about you. And you're looking around at your resume all the things that you do for God and you're stealing his glory, would that be something that God would drive out? The money changer in your own heart. Would he turn that table over? The temple made it really hard for the outcasts, the poor, and the nations to see and know God. How are we making it more difficult for people to see Jesus here? What do we need to repent of so that people can clearly see Christ? And in your own life, have you cluttered your life with a bunch of junk, with a bunch of self-centered plans and purposes for yourself that when people look in your life, they don't see Jesus, they don't have access to Jesus? What would Jesus drive out of your life so that people can get to the glory of God? Their mission was at stake. They were to be a light to the nations. What in our lives are there idols of comfort and safety in our own life that is keeping us from bringing the nations in, ministering the gospel to the nations? How could we give more? How could we go more? How could we pray more for the nations? What is cluttered in our heart, the temples of our heart that is keeping the lost out, that is keeping us from going to the nations and being a light? What would God drive out? You ask that question today. And we can't be scared of that question as a church. But notice what happens. And this is what Jesus is getting to. As we move through the week, the last six days of Jesus' life, understand Jesus has full authority about, in light of what is about to happen. And it begins here, verse 18. The chief priests and scribes heard it. They hear about what this crazy rabbi is doing in their temple and they began to seek a way to destroy him. Now, they want to demolish him. They, when they hear the name Jesus of Nazareth, he's here? And he's doing what? I mean, think about this. We talked about this last week. 250,000 lambs were sacrificed at one Pentecost or one Passover. And think about the revenue <laughs> that these men are now losing because of Jesus. 
their livelihood, who they are, their power is at stake, and they want to destroy him. They want to demolish him. But notice they fear him. They're scared of him. Why? Because the, all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. People were going, you know what? I think he's right. I, I think I'm on board with him. And just the day earlier, they were chanting, Hosanna. These men don't know what to do with Jesus. How can he have such power and influence over the people? And as we see that, we have to remember Jesus is in control of the narrative. We think sometimes Jesus got to Jerusalem and things got out of control and things went haywire and he didn't, he, you know, he was crucified and he couldn't do anything about it. That's not true. Jesus holds all the cards in this moment. The people are in his hand, and he will not be crucified unless he wants to be crucified. They will have to take his life from him. We see his sovereignty here, and he has rendered them powerless. But notice verse 19. We think, oh, he's going to set up shop. He's going to rule in his reign. But Mark, Mark emphasizes again and when evening came, they went out of the city. <laughs> he just shows up in the temple, stirs up a bunch of trouble, and goes back to the Airbnb in Bethany. What power? What authority? How did he get out of the temple alive? It's because he's in full control. He is the king. He is in control of all of this. Now, the problem of the religious leaders is... They don't know what to do with him because they say, if he is who he says he is, we lose it all. We lose our money. We lose our power. We lose our political standing. We lose it all if he is who he says he is. And if we kill him, that's even worse. They don't know what to do and they're scared. He brings the most influential, the most powerful religion of the day to its knees before him. We see his power, we see his authority, and that's your problem today too. Because if you open up your Bible and you read about this king, if he is who he says he is, you lose it all. Your power, your authority, your plans and your purposes have to become his. And that scares some of you to death. That's the reason some of you won't just give up and follow Jesus. Because you know what it's going to cost. There are things in the temple of your heart that need to be driven out. There's hypocrisy in your life that needs to be cursed. And it scares you and it's a threat. And the truth is here, Jesus comes to, to, top, to topple the power of the religion of the day. And he's come to do the same thing in your heart today. In the gospel, what Jesus intends to do with you today is curse your hypocrisy. Because some of you are here today and you are hiding your sin. You're covering it up. And in the gospel, Jesus stands before you today to curse it. On a cross where he endures the wrath of God and his blood is shed for you. And Jesus is the one who becomes sin. He becomes sin on the cross so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. You know what Jesus is saying on the cross? You can't hide anymore. 
You are guilty. Because why? Jesus isn't the one guilty on the cross. So if the sinless son of God is dying, he must be dying for someone else, and that's you. And you can't hide your sin at the cross. You can't come to the cross and try to cover something up. No, you come to the cross and you say, I've already been out it. Jesus has already put me on blast. I can't die for my sin. I can't do it. And that's why Jesus intends to drive out your glory with his righteousness today in the gospel. Jesus is the one who is righteous. And what we're going to see at the end of this week is he is the one who is driven out of the temple. He is the one who is taken out and he is placed on another mountain outside of the temple. He is killed at Golgotha. The one who is the glory of God in flesh is treated like a thief of God's glory. Who stole God's glory? You did. You woke up this week and you said, I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to be king. And you've done that every week of your life. And you'll keep doing it. Jesus isn't the one who stole God's glory. Jesus was perfect and Jesus was righteous. And he never sinned and he always obeyed God. And yet he is the one who is killed as a thief of God's glory. You know what he's doing there? He's driving your glory out and he is saying, you can only do it through my righteousness. You've got to turn to me and you can have no glory in this. The cross says you can have no glory. It is your sin and you can't do what Jesus has done with your righteousness because it is like dirty toilet paper in the nostrils of God. It won't work. And he comes today to drive out any righteousness that you might be trusting in. You can't have it. It doesn't work. It's all about the cross. It's all about Jesus. And he comes to curse it. And he comes to drive it out with the gospel. And he comes to take away your power in the resurrection. One of the things that's going to happen during this week is Jesus is going to be standing around and people are going to be gawking at Herod's temple and they're going to be talking about how amazing it is. Look at this temple, how amazing it is. I mean, I can't believe that we entered this partnership with Herod and we made, um, we made this deal with Herod and he constructed this beautiful masterpiece for Yahweh. Look at this temple, everybody. And Jesus is going to say... Tear it down, and I'll build it up in three days. And people laugh and walk away. And yet, the temple was pierced. And yet, the temple was beaten down. The temple was suffocated on the cross. And three days later, the temple got out of a first century coffin. And you know why I did it? To take away your power. Because when you come to die, if the resurrection isn't true, you will stay dead, separated under God's judgment forever. But because the resurrection is true, he has taken away your power. You must trust in him. You can't raise yourself from the dead. Only Jesus can. And that's scary and that's threatening to us. But here's the promise. When we get to the end of the Bible, there's this massive, glorious city that will come out of the sky, and it will rest and redeem everything that we see. It is the city of Jerusalem that will come down, 
And it will be like anything Herod could even creatively imagine in his mind or construct or build. It will be unlike anything you've ever seen. This glorious city, the new Jerusalem that will come down. And I bet you're thinking, I can't wait to see the temple. What must the temple in the new Jerusalem look like? If Herod can construct such a thing, what must God construct for us? Well, Revelation 21, 22 said, I saw no temple. There will be no more temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You want to see the temple of God? You've seen him. (laughs) And his name is Jesus. And when you believe in him, he curses your hypocrisy because he is the one who was cursed on the tree. And when you believe in him, he drives out your righteousness because he is the one who has pleased God for you. And when you believe in him, you are saying that it is resurrected kingdom that is your only hope. You know what the apostle John is saying in Revelation? In this new city, the glory of man will not exist. It will only be the glory of God. Come to the temple today and curse your glory. Even as someone who has stolen the glory of God, Jesus, the temple is your only hope. 